Well, let's go ahead and pray and I'll get started. Father, thank you for a time again to come before you and open our ears to hear your word. And Father, allow it to season us that it would change us. And Father, that uh, we would walk more like our Lord and Savior because of it. So Father, we, we thank you for the time. We thank you for your word that has left us with everything we need to live today in any situation. So Father, thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hopefully your memories are better than mine. I was just telling others my morning mind is dull. I'm not a morning person. And it's hard to get going, and it seems like it takes more and more caffeine to get there. So I'd do better at night church, probably. But uh, if you remember, I have it written down so that I can remember. Last week, we talked about it from Romans chapter 6, an argument Paul was dealing with. He's arguing with some folks, and just of where he's going is to tell them that they're wrong. We'll get into their argument in a second, but to tell them that they're wrong that when you are justified, that's a definite act of God, that you are also definitely sanctified. And there is a result, and that result is holy living. That there is no gap, there's no time, there's no choice not to be sanctified, to walk with the Lord, to live holy, to leave the past behind. It's an instantaneous happening. So he's refuting an argument then coming from Jewish Believers who had heard the gospel, apparently been saved, but had misconstrued Paul's teaching on grace such that they claimed what Paul taught was this, that because God loved to save sinners, the worst of them, with his abundant grace, it is therefore okay to continue in sin. It's a good thing because God loves to forgive abundant sin with more abundant grace. I didn't tell you last week where this argument began, how we know it's an argument, but back in chapter 3, if you're already in Romans 6, you can just turn back a few pages, you can see where this argument began. In verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul says this, he says, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. And he's pretty emphatic with the rest of the verse there, saying their condemnation is just. So since that point, he has been building on his argument, going into chapter 5, and I started with verse 20 last week, where he's refuting their error by laying out the truth about sanctification. That once justified, you are also definitely sanctified. And, And here's really Paul's point. Once a new believer is definitely justified and sanctified, There's a result. There will immediately begin a walk in Christ that bears the fruit of holy living. And the premise I take out of this area of Scripture is that justification and sanctification are two different realities, but they cannot be separated, they can't be disconnected, they can't be isolated one from the other in any way, and those that would teach such that you can separate by time or by choice a, a, uh, the act of holy living from being saved, they're teaching error. And I mentioned last week that we have something similar going on in our day and time, not quite the same 
is what Paul's talking about, but it's similar in a lot of ways. And it's come under the term of easy believism. I didn't really go into that. I, I say things, and, and sometimes we, we talk about things and assume everybody knows what it means. They, they've got that term down. They understand the implications of it. And just to cover what is easy believism, just superficially, because you could go into a lot of depth, it could be an entire time of teaching, it's really this. What's called easy believism is a teaching that falls under um, a, a series of teachings that would say this. Let's just start with it. That faith that saves, the faith that saves is a mere intellectual assent to the truths of the gospel. A mere intellectual assent. And with these intellectual assents to truths of the gospel, one can then appeal to Christ, the Savior, for salvation. But here's the disconnect with what Paul's teaching and what we would say the Bible teaches still. They would say it's not required that anyone appealing for salvation submit to Christ's lordship. In other words, holy living can be put off. One can continue to be mastered by sin and not mastered by Christ. Christ can be your Savior. doesn't have to be your Lord. Paul teaches the opposite. For those who confess Christ as Lord, they also know him as their Savior. And your pastors here at Lakeside would refute the old belief as well as the new of easy believism, our, posi- our position is this, that the gospel contains an indisputable call to discipleship. This, call, this is a call of repentant faith where one submissively and obediently follows Christ as Lord. And Jesus was clear about turning from sin and embracing righteousness. And when we call people to faith in Christ, that call presupposes that sinners repent of sin and then yield to Christ's authority. In Paul's day, the error was a suggestion or a belief that since grace abounds, it is okay to continue the sin as sin more as God loves to cover abounding sin. That's the term that Paul used. Abounding sin with even more abounding grace. Today, the issue is that you can seek salvation from Christ as Savior, but do not have to know Him as Lord. In both views, I think the essential sameness of those views is just this, that Christ is not your Lord. He's your Savior, but not your Lord. And Paul is pretty dogmatic about the fact that you do immediately begin a walk away from sin toward holy living. He says that in verse 6 of chapter 6. Let's just pick that up. He says it this way, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And later on in the chapter, we're not going to get there today, in verses 15 through 19, Paul links true conversion as a demand by Christ for unconditional surrender to him. Let's read 15 through 19. Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And you have two choices here. It's either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Verse, verse 19 ends with the result. You give yourself to Christ, you walk with him, you obey him, it results in sanctification. It's the same as saying holy living, a change of direction away from sin, specifically to obediently follow the word, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Down in verse 22 of chapter 6, Paul writes, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. He says it again, resulting in sanctification. And you get another outcome, he says, eternal life. So what is Paul trying to show us in those verses? He's trying to show us that the object of Christ's life and Christ's death and Christ's resurrection is what true believers put their faith in, and it's the foundation of their saving faith. Christ is the object. All propositional truth about Christ is the object of our faith. He is the Lord of all he saves, He demands us to leave and forsake and hate and be killing, be hating all that we loved prior to our salvation. Jump back to the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Here's how he sums that up. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a non-negotiable, non-choice to continue to live in sin and not turn and obey Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, Paul connects us to understand that true salvation means we are united to Christ in his death. And that's where we're going to pick up uh, today. Verse 3 says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And this uniting forever causes us to point to him as the cause of our salvation and to Christ as the author of our salvation instead of the objective truths of Christ, though, going back to what easy believism is today, they would point one to have faith in something subjective, like the fact that you pray to prayer. The sinner's prayer can contain the right words, but it may cause the wrong focus on how we were saved. Instead of propositions about Christ being the object of our faith, we rely on the subjectiveness of our having recited that prayer. When asked, how do you know when you were saved, a reply could be, well, on a certain date, with so-and-so in presence helping lead me, I prayed it. Therefore, I am. And if the prayer becomes central to one's salvation and not Christ as Lord, then is one truly saved? Possibly yes, possibly no. If there is no connection of justification to a new sanctified walk of holiness, then the answer is potentially no, probably no. And and taking us back to a very familiar verse, can we appropriate the truths of John 3.16 without equally having an appropriation of the truth of John 3.36. Turn back to John real quick. Let's just look at those two verses together. We know 3.16 very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 36 of John 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Can you appropriate Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord? No. Talking last week about our the priority of our school, it's evangelism, and we're witnessing all the time. And the efforts in our, our schools that will often, in witnessing, we will hear a student tell us that they claim salvation based on having prayed a sinner's prayer at a certain time in their life. And it wasn't but a few years ago that we had a young man in high school, very influential in, in the high school. And he had been hearing a series of messages. I can't remember whether it was Spencer King doing it or Jason Bruns at the time, but the, the uh, messages were about the fact that a believer will have changed desires. They will have a new walk. They will desire things they never used to desire. And it went over a series of weeks, and all of us began to notice this kid who was at once real happy and, and jovial. He was downcast. There was something wrong. And so I think it was Spencer finally went up to him, asked him what was going on, and he says, well, I've been hearing your messages, and I'm troubled. I do not desire to go to church. I do not desire to read the Word. I do not desire to fellowship with believers. I do not desire, and he went on and on. He named everything that he had heard the last several weeks. And his parents noticed the same thing. And they actually came in and said, do you know what's going on with our son? And I said, yeah, and as a matter of fact, I do. We just talked yesterday, talked with Spencer, and here's what he said. And the reply was, well, we'll fix this. He has nothing to worry about. When he was five, he prayed the prayer with his parents, and therefore it's a done deal. Yet this young man could look at Scripture that told him what a real believer, a true believer, should want and desire and act. And he said, that's not me. But we, you know, at that point, the word will have control over his life, but we lost the impact of, of being able to continue to talk to him. He said, my parents said, it's okay. I have to put my faith in that. Not the truths of Scripture. Our confidence must be fully in the truth of Scripture, not in ourselves, not in a, a work or an act that we did. And when we're presenting the gospel, we should always enjoin the spiritually hungry to satisfy their appetite daily by following their Savior. I talked about polls last week, that, that uh, polls would a decade ago, uh, that just asked the question, are you a Christian? 80% of America said yes. They narrowed it down by saying, um, well, if, are you born again? And that language shook uh, a bunch of people, and only about 50% said, yes, I'm born again. But just that term, being born again, that is day one in the walk, in newness of life. Holy living and striving for righteousness is that dash between that spiritual rebirth day and the day we go home to be with the Lord. Let me go back to verse 22 of chapter 6 again. Turn back to Romans. 
Paul said, but now having, be, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, that's holy living, and the outcome, eternal life. He's saying once enslaved to God, you derive a benefit, holy living, leading to a definite outcome, eternal life. So if I get back to my lesson from last week, we were covering three points. I was in the middle of two. The second one, when time ran out, didn't quite finish that. So as a reminder, the first benefit, we started in chapter 5, verse 20. We're going to to go through uh, chapter 6, verse 7 today. The first benefit, since we are justified by faith, we have received, past tense, done deal, freedom from the penalty of sin. And the second benefit we're going to continue with today that we receive from Christ's work on the cross is that we are sanctified and have received freedom from the power of sin. Let's go ahead and put these verses together. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 20, and read through verse 7. Paul writes, again, refuting the, those that would say it's okay to sin and uh, that God likes that. He refutes that by saying this, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the death, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So our second point here, the second benefit we receive from Christ's work on the cross is we are sanctified and we have received freedom from the power of sin. And picking it up in verse 3 again, Paul's point here going into baptism is to... Get those who claim this error, that Paul was teaching this error, to think. To think back. They had been baptized after receiving Christ. Paul teaches them that baptism is symbolic of having died with Christ, having gone into the grave, and then having been raised to new life. He's not teaching that baptism is what saves us. It's what believers do after their conversion. What he's teaching is baptism identifies us as we have identified that we believe in the death, we believe and trust in the death, the resurrection, and the result of new life, free from the penalty and power of sin, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Why is he bringing up this point? It's a point in that time, not so much ours today, but in that time, it should have really gotten their attention. For a Jewish man or woman to come home and say, hey, I've heard this gospel, I'm responding to it, I'm putting my faith and trust in Christ. That was one thing. But to come back home and say, hey, I've been baptized, was another thing. 
Coming home and saying, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah was certainly going to stir up a family conversation. And it probably wasn't going to be a pleasant one. You stop that thinking. You don't go any further with this. You put that off. Do not take this any further. And there would have been strife in a family over a profession of faith in Christ. That next step of obedience to that profession to be baptized was telling your family, your family members, your friends, and the nation of Israel, I've cut the ties with you spiritually. And it was a costly identification. It could have meant losing everything, being cast out of your home, or running for your life. That's not something we know about today. Yes, there are people who would leave Roman Catholicism. There are people who would leave um, Greek Orthodox faith. Yeah, there's going to be a family discussion when they go home and say, I, I'm leaving this church. I'm, I, I don't believe what I've grown up believing. I'm putting my faith and trust in, in Christ alone. And there's going to be a family discussion. They're probably not going to be booted out of the house. They're probably going to get yelled at but they're not going to be killed for their identification with Christ. Paul, in reminding them that they had already done this baptism and endured whatever cost came with this identification, wants them to remember why they did it. And what he goes into explanation is the identity that we attach ourselves to in baptism. We identify with Christ's death symbolically when we go into the waters of baptism. We're making a break with the old us. We're signifying that the old me has died with Christ. Sin is no longer my master. Christ is. Our baptism signifies something mysterious and new has happened within us. We have a new spiritual union with Christ. The old me is gone. It's dead. The new me is alive, and it's come and taken its place. Therefore, Paul's point is that these people who are arguing with him, that I hear you saying this about grace, Paul, he's saying, no, that's incongruous. For a true believer to say or think that continued sinning so that grace might increase is even remotely an acceptable thought. Christ's death not only broke the penalty of my sin, but it has broken the power of it as well. I talked last week about what if I died right here on the spot. I am no longer part of the realm of you. I'm not breathing and taking in oxygen, can't see you anymore, not thinking about you. Um, I'm, in a, I'm gone. And that's the same point I'm trying to make by thinking about death of our old self. We're not there anymore. We're not that person anymore. And Christ's death not only broke the penalty of our sin, but it broke the power of it as well. If we died with Christ, then we have also been raised with him, Paul says in verse 4. And he says, as a specific result. Look at verse 4, the very end of it. Nine key words. Verse 4. So we too might walk in newness of life. Those who tend to see sanctification as purely something progressive that happens at some point in time after justification, now they may also get a thought from looking at that verse that would be the wrong thinking. One of the arguments against this verse that goes a different direction, what's it? Paul said you might walk. 
That means you might not. That's not Paul's intention here at all. He chooses the word peripateo for walking in Greek, but it's, it is a walk. There's no ifs, ands, or buts that you may or you may not start that walk in newness of life. So might walk might be a little bit of a poor translation, lending itself to some abuse. But in verse 5 of chapter 6, Paul is emphatic that if we are united in his death, then we shall be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So how are we united with him? This uniting is not a powerless uniting. It is a dynamic uniting whereby we have gained the power to say no to sin. Our walk after salvation is directly related to the power of Christ in us. Where can we see this? If you will, turn to Ephesians. I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, and then work backwards. Paul, for the first three chapters, has been teaching great doctrine. Gets to what we know as chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In verse 20, going back to chapter 3, he says it's according to the power that works within us. What kind of power is this? Jump back to chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in 15, read through 2.10 to get the answer for where this power comes from. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And here's Paul's prayer for believers. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint, and the third thing, verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Those three things he just mentioned, they are, he says, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's connecting this power that God used to raise the son from dead and seat him in the heavenlies And then we roll into what we know as chapter 2, 1. He says, and you too. You too were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's no might walk here at all. That same power, going back to verse 19, that same power toward us who believe, that raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, that leads right into the fact we were spiritually dead. And that same power God used to raise us to spiritual life, all who would believe. And there's a result, verse 10, chapter 2 of Ephesians, so that we would walk in newness of life, that there would be sanctified living. And the result of that power is we will walk. Well, what is that walk all about? We only look back to Christ to identify what our walk is all about. He walked all around Galilee. Step by step, he went day by day. But Scripture tells us Christ's walk was directly related. I say walk, I'm talking every step of every day to obedience to meet his Father's will. For us, we, we would go to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and we would see our walk described this way, that we walk by faith and not sight, but it's describing that our faith is in the propositional truth we know about Christ. That's the faith we have. That's what we walk in. Our walk is an obedient walk as Christ walked. God's will now dictates the pattern of our living. Our flesh is no longer the driving force behind what we do or our pattern of living. It is Christ in us. That is our new driving force. What we read in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk. Again, not might walk in those good works prepared for us. In the order of salvation that the God had planned from the foundation of time was an immediate expectation of holy living in the life of those justified by faith in Christ. In this connection between our justification and our sanctification, it's instantaneous in its application. No, we're not sin-free. We all know, and I, I mentioned it last week, what it was for me, it was, it was the language that used to come out of my mouth was gone, and we should all be able to look back and remember what changed in my life. And that's the result of the new walk. Things begin to change. We're only going to change more when we make this and the ingesting of the Word, where we get our diet and our calories from, the rest of the changes that we need to make. We're going to find out what they are, and we're going to have the power to say no to sin. True believers who are definitely justified are also definitely sanctified. So first two benefits of all true believers that all true believers realize through the cross work of Christ. Benefit one, since we are justified by faith, we have received freedom from the penalty of sin. The second benefit we receive from Christ's work on the cross, we are sanctified and have received freedom from the power of sin. We'll jump into our third benefit here. Our third benefit is this, received from Christ's work on the cross, we have received Freedom from the mastery of sin. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 again. Paul writes, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. 
Paul points us to look at that union we have with Christ, the reality of it. The union with Christ's death and his resurrection, look at it in more depth. He says, if we are united with him in a death, it is a death like his. And if we are united with him in a resurrection, it's a resurrection like his. And Christ's death destroyed sin's power. Those who place faith in Christ's work were in effect there with him in that death, having their penalty removed and the power destroyed. And in his resurrection, Christ rose as master over sin and death. All in him, Paul says, rose with him as well. And Ephesians confirmed that, what Paul wrote there. We are seated. It's a done deal. We're here today. We're walking in that sanctified life. But that seat's there. Sin no longer lords over us. Christ who lives in us by the Holy Spirit is the Lord who saved us from our sin. So no longer is sin master over us. Christ now is. Our salvation means we have died to sin. We now live to God. John MacArthur in these verses said this for us to make a good connection. I like it. He said this resurrection life was the certain consequence of Christ's death. Jesus went to the cross knowing the resurrection would happen. MacArthur then says, so the believer's holy living is a certain consequence of his salvation. Whereas sinful living was our former pattern of life, sinning less and less in our living is our new pattern of life. And Paul reminds us of this graphically in verse 6 by saying our old self, it was crucified. We're new because we have a new nature. We are new because we're united with Christ. He is the power in us so that we can bear that fruit of holy living. We now have the power not to sin because sin's mastery has been broken by Christ and replaced by Christ. Our third benefit received from Christ's work on the cross, we have received freedom from the mastery of sin. Freedom from the penalty, the power, and the mastery of sin. We've read this before. I want to look at it again. Romans six seventeen through 18 confirms that having been freed from sin, the enslavement to sin has simply enslaved us now to righteousness. Let's look at 17 and 18 one more time. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Scripture teaches elsewhere that those who belong to Christ truly love him, and therefore they long to obey him. Turn to John 14. Let's just see a couple verses that attest to this. Those who belong to Christ, they truly love him and therefore they long to obey him. John 14, first, verse 15. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's to the point. Jump down to 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Because Christ is the Lord of all he saves, he requires our self-denial of our sinful past, our sinful old self, and demands our will's subjection. Now, I can identify with this term easy believism. 
a little bit differently, a little bit out of order at age 20. And, and I've mentioned this before when I've taught in my testimony in getting an answer from a pastor on my question of what must I do to be saved. It was an easy answer. And I like that. Just be baptized. I'll baptize you and you will be saved. Now, I put my faith and trust in the act and in his words and was a faithful attender of that denomination for almost 10 years, but that denomination rarely got this out and rarely more than speaking a part of a verse at the beginning of a message. I never had to read this, never had to bring it. Nothing ever disputed what I'd put my faith in, his word. That act. And that was easy. And I wasn't changed. And sin still reigned in my life. And it wasn't until later at age 30 when I started a Roman study with Bible Study Fellowship that I learned the truth of what was in the Word. And that my belief in my, my baptism had saved me was a real harsh reality. Find out. There's nothing in the Bible that supported that, and it was wrong. But finding out the truth of God's hatred for my sin, the wrath that was upon me, the condemnation that was on me, the penalty that was due me, the separation that was a reality in my life from God, broke the ice. Learning that there was nothing in me worthy, no ability to self-improve, My sin nature made me dead spiritually towards God. I did not have a free will. The only free will that I contained was the free will ability to continue to sin. But praise God for the gospel of Christ. To learn it was his work. We just passed Christmas. The incarnation is is a part of the truth of Christ's birth. Paul earlier in chapter 5 said one act of Christ. That one act wasn't just the cross. That one act was that first breath in his incarnation and his birth as a baby. He walked, he lived and grew and walked on this earth free from sin so that he could be the unspotted and unblemished lamb who could go to the cross and pay the price, be a substitute for me and everyone else who would put their faith and trust in his work. Coming to that knowledge, God opened my heart. Replaced that dead sin nature, and I began to see the truth, and immediately began to walk in it. There was no disconnect. There was no momentary thinking that I had any choice. Not that it hasn't been a struggle. Sin is a struggle in this life, but I have the power to say no. That's because I am in Christ, in Christ in me. So the evidence of genuine saving faith will always be characterized by desire and willingness to obey Christ as the Lord of our lives, and he died to save us. So three true benefits. Receive from Christ's work on the cross. We receive freedom from the penalty of sin. We receive, receive freedom from the power of sin, and we receive freedom from the mastery of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
it's what guides us and teaches us and provides us with sufficient light to navigate through this life. Oh, Lord God, I would pray that none other would be deceived by putting their faith in their own works and not in that which you prepared for us. I pray for our walk in holiness as we leave here today, as we are still yet to hear from Steve and and his message, that we would be built up, Lord, by your word, that we would have the strength, power that you've given us to walk in holy conduct, that we would be found by you spotless and blameless. In Jesus' name, amen.